This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're having a yarn with James Morse, or Morsey. James and his wife Sally operate a family farming operation, Wongalee, near Molong. It's a 1,094 hectare cattle breeding and trading enterprise. Although you'll hear in this episode, they haven't ruled out branching into other species, especially if their kids' goat breeding hobbies really take off. In this episode, you'll hear how James and Sally run their whole farm system with sustainability in mind. James shares his tips on sustainability in soils, plants, animals and the environment. And also, how this sustainability mindset extends to James's own mental health. Local Land Services District Vet, Jill Kelly, had this yarn with James out in his paddock. We're here, tell me about your place. We're originally we're a breeding operation and in its peak sort of season-wise we'd have sort of 500 um, breeders and followers on but since going through succession and the drought and stuff we totally destocked in September uh, 19 and we um, sold what we had left of the cows and calves and any sort of trade cattle we had we had locked up on on feed until pretty much March I think this year was when we sort of got out of everything because we decided they were too dear to own so we sold sold everything we had left and um, we we're looking at taking on adjustment cattle and things but um, yeah, it just didn't sort of happen, so we've been happy enough to let our country just recover from the last 18 months, two years of drier conditions. And so the decision to destock the cows and the calves, was that made after slogging it out and trying to feed everything for a while and forking out a lot of money, or was it done proactively? And was it? how did it feel? Was it particularly heartbreaking, or did you think, oh, shit, thank God, they're gone? We'd managed things reasonably well the year before in that... Um, we got away without feeding our cows the previous year so we, I guess we had a little bit of, of money up our sleeve to feed the cows so um, but it just you know I guess I suppose it's 12 14 years that we'd been breeding these um, these cows up and and we'd had a fair bit of success in the teas um, land Jindalee feedlot trial and things like that we'd we'd won that a couple of times with progeny we'd won so we were basically back to second and third carvers and the heifers and and whatnot but um yeah it was just at the time when we made the decision it was i suppose it felt like there was a weight lifted off your shoulders when it came to actually loading them on the truck it was sort of a bit teary i suppose it could have been so there's sort of and that's what we said we could always start again if we really wanted to get back in into the breeding again like we've we achieved a fair bit in that time frame with our animals, and and like we we were always very, very hard on our um, on our females from a fertility point of view. Like the heifers that only get joined for 25 days, and the cows for six weeks, and things like that. So, you know, we we had a pretty fertile herd, and and drove them pretty hard. Like they worked for us, not we're working for them, so to speak. So. And yeah. so now it's rained. Um, you've had the ability and the opportunity to sow some crops and buy in some stock. So what's your focus now? So what's probably changed for us since since we've um, got rid of those cattle is, is the whole succession thing with sales families gone through. So we're actually now 
Um, probably by the time this goes to air, we'll, we'll actually own Wongalee. So up until now, we've been leasing. So that's been a big mind shift and, and a big thing that we're just going to have to start to manage cash flow better. So um, with our location, we've, we've always said to ourselves, we're in the ideal location to, to trade livestock. We're pretty much halfway between Dubbo and Karkor, two of the biggest sort of cattle selling centres in the state. Um, we're sort of halfway between the Riverina and the and, um, Liverpool Plains where there's a number of feedlots and stuff and pretty much halfway between Victoria and Queensland if you look at it like that. And we're, we're right on the highway. In terms of access to, to trucks and, and things like that, I think we've always told ourselves that we're more... Um, situated for a trading operation slash fattening operation so um and it's just i guess not so much got our hand forced because of the drought but it was probably something we always knew we had to do and it, it was just the the hand that forced it so have you always stuck to cattle or did sheep ever come into the equation we did have sheep there for a while but we had foot rot issues down in this this country so i think the aim for us is traditionally the place has been set up for for just the large animals but Going forward, we're going to look at, at rejigging the sort of troughs and the infrastructure and stuff to be able to opportune trade sheep and, and maybe even look at the goats. And our children have got a few uh, few little goats running around and I think there's a real opportunity with, with goats going forward, but you've just got to keep those buggers in. I've just been introduced to the goat herd, goat flock, and charcoals had triplets. <laughs> which is a big success in the breeding program and they've busted out of the tennis court today. So, yeah. <laughs> so you're buying in stock to trade now. You're buying into a pretty hot market. How are you approaching purchasing decisions? So for us, it's always been a lack of access to capital as to why we haven't done more trading. So we've done a lot of backgrounding and, and adjustment and things in the past. And it's something that I guess we've always prided ourselves on is um, is A, management of our grass and B, performance of the livestock on the grass. So going forward with the ownership of the land, we're going to have access to, to capital and things like that. So we've sort of got a bit of a trading spreadsheet that we'll, we'll look at, you know, um, look at the auctions plus um, lots and we'll try and look at bigger lots. So try and work in B double loads in and things like that to try and... Um, keep freight per head down as much as possible which even that in itself is proving a challenge in, in this market too there's a lot of smaller lots are out um, coming on the market but we'll have our cost to carry we'll have freight in freight out we'll um, sort of have a, an estimated sell price out the other end so we just work on sort of the feeder weights taking them through to sort of 400 odd kilos um, and I've got, only got these blokes priced in and I think at $3.60 a kilo on the way out and the sums on these fellas um, is anywhere from 20 to 30 bucks a head per week so after after all the all the costings of the trade and everything so you know induction um a &E, b12 five and one drench all that sort of stuff so it, there's no doubt there is a challenge but i think we've rather than staying with the black um you know how dear the angus cattle are at the moment we sort of went north and found some that you know temperaments temperaments right and i think that's a big thing with cattle too handling them temperaments right like um, we spent a lot of time on some adjustment cows that came in that, you know, you'd um, open the gate for them and they'd trot to the other end of the paddock and things like that and that does my head in. Like when, when they get moved to the next paddock, I want the heads down eating grass as soon as they go in, not running to the other end of the paddock. And So we spend a fair bit of time training the cattle with the dogs. And So we're outdoors today and we're standing in a, just a bit of a native pasture paddock with... Um yeah, a mob of sort of mixed breed cattle that came from Queensland? 
Yeah, so we we got um, got a beautiful line of sort of Charolais, Angusy, Droughtmaster cross type cattle out of um, Augustella, and at the time we probably went a bit above, but you could just see the quality of the cattle were there, and I'm a big believer in in quality of animals, and you know people that handle them right, I think they do better for their whole life. So. So what's your general procedure when you do get cattle in? Have you got a bit of a a bit of a plan for how each mob's inducted so you don't have issues? So what we'll generally do these last two lots that have rocked up, so sort of nine nine thirty ten o'clock. Um, and so what we've done and and being cold and and things like that so we've we usually leave them in the yards if the conditions were right on um, good quality oat and hay and they'd stay there for a couple of days um, just to settle down and get used to things and and then we'd um, process them then we'd we'd weigh scan weigh them um, five in one AD and EB12 and um, and a sidectin poron and then what we've done We've got this in a pasture paddock here that's had a lot of summer grass come away through through the rains in um, in late summer and, and autumn, um, but it's also got there's a lot of phalaris and coxfoot and clovers coming underneath it. So we've left these boys on here for two weeks before we put them on the grazing oats. But as a general rule, we'll leave each mob separate for about two weeks before joining the rest of the mob just to make sure there's no animal health issues or anything to try and avoid contamination and stuff. I know it doesn't always work out like that, but not knowing where they've come from and what they're on on the other place and certainly some of the little fellas that came from Westmar some of the photos there looks absolutely horrendous so as much as the drought's broken for a lot of us I think there's still some patches that are still pretty ordinary um, but we just wanted to make sure they had a couple of weeks on um, on a bit of green pick and stuff to get their bugs and changed over in that room and stuff so we've got a lot of dry feed in here as well as well as a bit of um, fresh green stuff underneath to um, to get things changing over for them. And I love it that you talk about the rumen all the time and the bugs. I know you spend a lot of time looking at poo. <laughs> That's the go. Yeah, and it's uh, years ago I was told you can you can tell a lot by the animal about what's coming out the back end. So, and, and I guess it's something that where I see things at the moment. A lot of people who come in here and say, "Oh, it's bloody good cow feed in here," but you know, there's 250 steers in this mob here. It's a about 12 hectares this block um, they'll have been in here for a week tomorrow morning and as you can see Jill there's still plenty of feed left here mm. um, there's still plenty of green tucker in here you know the clover is probably still four or five inches high the stuff they've grazed off or more even in patches but you know the cattle are happy they're just walking past us and you know um, like I said if they're starting to run a bit um, bit hard like coming into summer and things like that that's when we'll start using the protein licks like urea based licks and things like that to try and keep that performance going at the moment we've got them on a um, on a green feed um, brew that we've uh, we make up so a lot of trace mineral type stuff we put out with them as well because not knowing where what they you know where they've come from and even here we notice with different um, I guess it's different soil types. They'll they'll hit the licks differently in different paddocks too. So it's um, it's all a little bit interesting. But yeah, we sort of want that, you know, nice round pumpkin pie they call it, with a bit of a dip in the middle. And yep. that's I know know the rumen's functioning properly. But the rumen's designed to turn some pretty rank sort of grasses into a protein. And um, I think if we supplement that rumen right, you can still maintain that animal performance um, a lot longer. So. So part of your strategy is not only to make money and turn off, you know, animals, but it's to look after the land as well. I know you're really big on that and you've done a lot with sort of regen ag. Tell me about that. 
I suppose that's part of, been part of the whole journey, like the last 12, 12 years or so. So coming out of this drought, the decision to destock late last year and, and keep cattle off the grass, and, and even now, like, we're probably only about 25% of what we potentially could stay on. Uh, but that's just, no, I don't know, I'm not willing to give my country away for nothing, for adjustment and, and stuff like that. I'm happy enough to wait until we can get access to capital and try and work on a 20 to $30 a head a week margin at the moment, which I still think is pretty reasonable. Um, but it's, um, it's all about looking after ground cover and, and having diversity of species available there for, for the livestock to access. And, and it's, it's evolved for us over time. Like we three, four years ago now we had Gabe Brown out from North Dakota or lucky enough to host Gabe Brown at a field day here and anyway it was just amazing um, spending a bit of time with him but you know that was when we were putting a lot of um, summer sorghums and forages and um, cow peas uh, we managed to get sun hemp one year and a few different pieces of things like that so and that was to originally we started was to address that feed gap through summer or a production feed gap through summer but what's changed now is that we've had a lot of that native warrego grass which is still a lot of it through here too now that's obviously hayed off but we, we're finding we don't have that summer feed gap now um, and that's where we're really lucky here too is the rainfall like we could our long-term average like 120 year rainfall data goes back and then we pretty much average 50 mils of rain every month of the year so our whole principle behind the regenerative ag thing is to have something there that'll grow actively grow all year round so we're looking at changing um, the species around a bit I suppose so you know we still want to see you know phalaruses and, and you know we still want a high production pasture but um, in saying that the warrego grass is probably one of the, the most um, valuable native grasses in terms of production through summer and, and it was um, it's a proper no cost thing so it's changed a lot like I said so initially when we started doing it we were trying to address the summer feed gap we now don't have a summer feed gap so we're coming back looking at this now and so the other big thing we've got here is tap-rooted like um, saffron thistle and some Barnaby's thistle and stuff like that is just an absolute menace in in this country so we're now looking at ways to say right let's let's get rid of these undesirables but I want to replace them with a desirable tap-rooted type thing so so I'm going to harvest some tillage radish uh, some brassica vetch and then a bunch of clovers and chicory that you know we'll do a broadleaf spray take out the undesirables but I'm going to come straight in behind that and replace it with desirables mm. if that makes sense so yep. it's it's an ever-evolving thing so yeah for us. your farming styles evolve over time so you've learned a bit here and a bit there and a bit of the you know the old man's ways and a bit of this and a bit of that and you've combined it into your own there's no doubt it's cost us like um, somebody told us we should let all our country go and just let it recover naturally and you know for the next three years all it grew was saffron thistles and it's like we're sitting on two and a half thousand dollar an acre country or I know we're talking in acres and not hectares but that's what everyone seems to talk so everyone will understand what we're talking about but you know we lost three years of production off that and I said we just can't afford to keep doing it that because you know we've got to try and help it like we've got 80 odd years or more of farming in this country that's been traditional dropping a plough in it and you know having it bared up and uh and things like that and it's um yeah it's a real mindset change to try and say well you know even through summer like some of the country we let go just to have summer grasses grow all over it, the grazing crop country 
and um, you know you could go and put a probe down right down to the hilt and then you go to a bear patch and the probe wouldn't go down at all so mm. in my mind it's saying well you know these grasses are actually protecting the soil surface and we've just got to work out how we can work within those boundaries so yeah um, well you're obviously doing something right because the paddock we're standing in is pretty nice these guys are spending a couple of weeks in here and mm -hmm. then you're going to put them out on crop how do you go about that actual day that you put them out and then how do you manage them on that crop so what we're going to do so probably the morning of um, once the dew's lifted we'll go and put our foliar spray out so we'll do the foliar spray we'll keep this green feed lick up with them and, and hopefully what we'll see you know i might have to do another foliar spray but hopefully we'll see an increase in the in the green feed lick to say right it's time to do another the foliar spray but we've also got some straw left over from feeding last year so we'll probably um we'll probably put some straw out for a couple of weeks in there just while they transition onto the oats from this you know clover um sort of ryegrass based pasture they're on now mm -hmm. and then what's the end game with these guys how long will you keep them and what what will their end point be and how do you manage that We've done all the figures on taking them through to sort of feeder weights at the moment, but I guess a lot of it depends. Like, there's some littler cattle here that were sort of only 170 kilos when they when they rocked up, so um, we'll just see how they're going in the spring, keeping them on the market, and if there's an opportunity to to um, turn them off sooner at a reasonable margin, then we may look at that. But um, you know, the end game is like I think mostly the target that feeder market obviously not everything's going to fit that some will end up maybe getting fattened for a bit longer and going to a kill like i think that's the beauty of of this trading thing you've got the flexibility to go with wherever you wherever you need to go with them in terms of um, without actually being stuck into one market and that's black steers and things like that i think you've just you've got to keep those options open i think the key um, for us is flexibility and this is again why we're looking at this trading option like so we sort of did some rough numbers um, last year so the start of last year January, Feb, March wasn't too bad rainfall wise um, but then it basically didn't we had I think half the amount of rain for the following nine months is what we did in the first three months so um, and, and for us it was and, and everyone else I would imagine be similar but it was combined effect of two years of 300 mils rainfall which traditionally we're 650 plus on the country so we still worked out last year even with that three months that we probably could have turned over 1500 um taking them from you know say two say 300 kilos to 450 400 450 kilos last year in probably what second second worst sort of rainfall um year on record um and then yeah so for us the trading thing means that we can actually look after our country a bit better and say right let's um let's destock you know so one of it might be a pipe dream but Sal doesn't know what I'd do at the beach for two months but the idea was that we'd get rid of all the cattle and just go away for December, January so you don't have to worry about checking waters, you don't have to go worry about anything, you just sell everything, go away for a couple of weeks with the kids. So. <laughs> You'll have to but, go south <laughs> to go camp drafting <laughs> yeah, in December, well, January true. That's true, yeah, we'd go down to Gippsland so, but anyway it was just, it, like I said it might be a pipe dream, we sort of, there's always something to do on the farm but you know, the target is for the to go to the feeder market with them at the moment but yeah. we're always just looking at where there may be the best return on 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 our asset is um, yeah. and where to put that money so and and we'll do a similar process getting them ready to to um to go to foot to the feedlot so they'll spend sort of 24 to 36 hours in the yards on good quality oat and hay with a, a magnesium supplement just to make sure they're um they're all um, right for the bus trip ahead basically so uh, i think it's pretty important to look after your livestock like yeah and um, i guess if you're selling into the same market each time buyers get to know that those cattle are gonna you know 
hold up well on the truck and things? The cattle that we have traded and, and things like that previously, um, we've always found, um, particularly when they go to a feedlot, cattle from here, because they've been exposed to animals from other areas, like the years we've won the, the feedlot trial, we, um, the animals had, our animals had absolutely no sicknesses. Like they'd been exposed to cattle from hay, the New England, and uh, you know a few other different pieces. So when we did have our own homebred cattle, they were run with trade cattle as well. So mm. when they went to the feedlot, they weren't naive. And I think that's something that yep. it helps. And so we've got these lick feeders out um, in the paddock with these cattle, and I think they find they don't have a problem putting their heads in a bunk and stuff when they actually do make it to the feedlot as well. So yeah, they're not necessarily really bunk trained, but you know they. They've used to sticking their head into to, into a tub to get the lick and stuff out, so they're not scared of putting their head into. Yeah. yeah so. I think that's absolutely true. That mixing of animals prior to feedlot entry mm. to get exposed to things like respiratory bugs and pestivirus and things, but to expose them in a really low stress environment so they mm. don't get acutely sick from it. That's mm. yeah. So it's yeah. about getting the animals used to what you do and how you do it. So we'll spend a fair bit of time with these with these cattle and. Now it's one of those things you look out in the morning or, or whatever and you see them all camped up by nine o'clock, you know something's right. Mm. Whereas if they're all out still grazing, that they're probably not run out of feet. Because mm. um, most of the grazing is done at night and early in the morning, late in the afternoon. They don't graze so much during the day. So, yeah, when we see that sort of stuff, um, and what is it now? It's about 20 to 4. Yeah. Um, so the boys are just starting to graze back towards us here now. Mm. So, you know, that's, that's probably what I like to see. Um, if that makes sense, so yeah. yeah, I think that's part of being a successful cattle farmer is just attention to detail and spending time with your animals and noticing things like that. You got to look after your country and only your livestock and and um, everything else will look after itself. Then yeah, that's right. that makes sense. So. That little bit of time spent early on when the cattle arrive will pay dividends going forward. So I keep telling myself Rome wasn't built in a day. Having good facilities, especially when you're turning over a lot of number, numbers and things as well, because um, and making the animals feel safe and stuff is, um, is pretty important because you start dropping cattle into, you know, I know some cows and calves that bought out of Victoria were loaded out of sheep yards and stuff like that. So I just don't think it's fair on the animals. Yeah. Personally. How do you balance work-life balance when you live on a farm and you live at your workplace, essentially? What do you do to get away from it all and um, enjoy life? <laughs> we've seen it as an opportunity to do a lot of the stuff that we haven't done over the years that we've wanted to do. Like, we've been redesigning a few things, like, over the pale purchase the land like we're saying all right this is our ultimate goal of how we want it set up so there's a lot of that we're redoing fences and 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 things so i think it's seen us do probably a lot of stuff that wouldn't get done normally if that makes sense so but usually um that time that we've now filled in elsewhere we um as a family do the camp drafting as you know and um that's something that i think once we get in into that we'll um be good to get away again but it, I mean it's been challenging because we haven't been able to go anywhere but it's mm. it's been good too like even when the kids had to be homeschooled like the bloke that works part-time for us like so we we sent the kids down with him and they built the new dog a dog kennel and things like that so they did a bit of welding and measuring yeah. and you know so we tried to sort of mix it up and you know, did a pastoral thing with, with my daughter and showed her all the different grasses and so tried to change it up a little bit like that and 
It was only Sal was telling me not that long ago that Gracie was back around wielding out telling Sal what all these grasses were. So I was quite glad to see that it had sunk in. So, yeah, yeah, their yeah. lessons I'll <laughs> probably remember forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, but it's, yeah, it, like I said, it's, um, we're kind of lucky. Sal's pretty easy going. She puts up with me and, mm. and whatnot. But, um, you know, we've sort of got similar goals in what we want to try and achieve. And I think that's most important. So, Tell me about your bugger ups. To be honest, we've been quite lucky, and I guess it's, I don't know, like I've always, your gut tells you whether or not you're doing the right or wrong thing a lot of the time, and like if I if I'd sort of sense something, you know, that I probably shouldn't be doing something, then I shouldn't be doing it, you know, like to me, you know, pulling animals off, off you know, like our fellas, a lot of them came from 800 to 1,000 k's away, so they'd sort of 12, 14 hours on a truck, and mm. you know, eight to 10 months old, you know, you're standing on a truck for that long, it's it's not fair, like, you know, even you go driving with your kids, like, you got to pull up for a bit, otherwise they do your head in, yeah. um, you know, so, um, yeah, but uh, just, it's something that I'd never consider doing, if that makes sense, like, even, so we've got um, we've got a bit of straight brassica and straight tillage radish here at the moment and I wouldn't entertain putting cattle on it at the moment because there's just not enough diversity in there to do it. So, you know, if I was going to do something like that, I'd probably try and put sheep on it or something like that, a bit less risk. But common sense prevails most of the time. Like, you just got to be a bit smarter than, yeah, trying to be hard and fast and don't look at the Well, farming's line. an art, isn't yeah. it, as well as a science. It's a gut feel thing yeah. sometimes. Yeah, and, and I think there's a lot in that. But, I mean, you yeah. You know what, you, if you sat down and ate a whole tub of Sierra Lee Ultra Choc ice cream, you're going to have pain in the gut. Um, you know, same deal. But if you sit down and you, you have sort of steak and salad or something and then you have a, bit, a little bit of that, it's a lot more balanced. And that's the way I see it with an animal as well. Like, you go and put them on rocket fuel, you're going to end up with problems. But if you put them on a diverse thing like this, like, you know, you can hear how they're running and they're still probably running a little bit loose, these cattle at the moment. But... You know, you look at the grass they're on and, you know, there's a species diversity there. So mm. ultimately I'd like to get away from monocultures. So what we've done this year with a lot of our sowing is we've put cereal and, and a brassica in together and then down the track we'll add, add a legume in as well. But that's um, that's how we're trying to address the, the species diversity thing. And, and the next stage for us will be diversity of having smaller hoofed animals here that eat different things as well, hopefully. Mm. So, yeah. That's your bazzardo. And one behind you. They're so double muscled, aren't they? Yeah. And funnily enough, they don't actually have the double muscling gene. Don't they? So they're a Euro breed, but they don't actually have the double muscling gene. They look um, like bodybuilders, just yeah. for everyone in podcast land. <laughs> <laughs> they're muscly. Uh, they're, they're, not, they're not quite like your Belgian blues or anything like that, but Sal's father saw these cattle up in North Queensland, and they've actually got the highest saleable meat yield out of any breed, and don't quite me what it is but it's up in the 60% sort of range so wow. it's um but it's a really lean meat so they're very difficult to get fat on but you know when you cook it up it's still juicy but stupidly went and found somebody dispersing a bazardo herd and thought right oh well you know no harm in trying so we're not going to be breeding ourselves so I'll trigger around with um we're doing some breeding on the father-in-law's block but so yeah cool yeah. and what do they like to chase around the camp <laughs> no course. they're horrible <laughs> they are absolutely horrible euros are no good you know that so what happened they're only released for export out of the I think it's the Bazar region in France but 
they were only released for export in the mid-80s because in World War II the Germans pretty much ate them all. Uh-huh. They were that tasty compared to everything else. They ate them all, apparently, so the story goes. And That's amazing. Yeah. So what we were doing there and playing around with was with teas and the value-based payment system they're talking about bringing in was trying to get an animal in that had a lot higher saleable meat yield going forward, so we're sort of just playing around. So we'll have a few purebred Bazaday go in for the for the feedlot trial this year and a few Angus Bazaday cross, so we're just going to mm. see how they go in that. And, yeah, just this... On the 40 odd cows over there, we're playing around with, I suppose. But cool. the first thing, the new fir- yeah, the first thing we did though, and because they'd come from a herd that was basically throw the bull out and continuously joined, and we've obviously lost a fair few, was I tighten the joining up to get the fertility right, which I'm a big believer. Um, in the maturity pattern of animals and also the body condition score has a lot to do with your fertility. So, yeah, me joining them. For a shorter period of time means I get rid of those bigger rangier type animals and a more moderate, thicker, easier doing type animals. So that was there's a three-pronged sort of approach I suppose to my short joining periods was I was I actually found out the animals that would do better on the grass because obviously body condition score has a lot to do with cycling and everything else. So you know you found that your heifers that went in calf earlier or in that first you know 25 days is what we did it were the ones that you wanted to keep anyway and mm. that was one thing when we were breeding was I didn't want to be checking heifers for eight weeks mm. basically so and 25 days was pissing me off too to be honest <laughs> interferes with mind. your social yeah, exactly <laughs> so you know we can't go to a campground on a weekend if we're carving yeah. in July like yeah anyway so there's a lot of confidence in agriculture at the moment and I think there's opportunities in ag and I think it's just a matter of working out where you where you fit in the scheme of things. So yep. um, we're, um, we're very big in the, um, or trying to be in the regenerative path and we've sort of got a few, you know, it's, it's surrounding ourselves with, with people that are, are right for our business. And I think that's the key to any business is surrounding yourself with like-minded people and you know, get away from the negative connotations that some people have. Like, you know, there's... Um, some people are always glass half empty, some people are glass half full. So I think wherever there's, um, you know, wherever there's a problem, there's probably an opportunity there somewhere as well. You've just got to sort of change the way you look at it a bit. So, um, yeah. And that's something that's come from, oh, I was diagnosed with depression probably eight years ago. Um, but I, it's probably maybe a little bit off topic, but I know it's probably pretty pertinent in agriculture at the moment. And I don't actively go and tell everyone that I've got it and things like that, but... I'm medicated and I certainly know when I'm not on it, I can be very difficult to, to deal with um, and live with. So, it's but you know, it's, it was somewhere I was driving along and by myself in the truck, and I was up in Queensland somewhere, and it was like, if I don't do something, ask for help, I won't have a family, um, basically, because that's how low I was. Like, I was. And so I actually went and asked for help. and the old horse doctor in Molong, as he was called, um, you know, was said, you're going to take as long to learn how to manage it and deal with it as what you've had it, basically. So, and I can remember having suicidal thoughts as a kid, which may sound crazy, but that's probably how long it's been around too. But, you know, it's until you admit you've got a problem and, and go and ask for help, there's, there's very, re- really very little somebody else can do for you. Like, you know, you can go and offer your support and, and what lot like that, but nine times out of ten... Most people are feeling that down about everything at 
probably makes them feel worse because, you know, they're actually seeing that people are aware that they've got a problem. So, you know, we all have relapses and stuff like that too and every, you know, 6 to 12 months I'll still go and see my um, psychiatrist. The psychologist didn't really do it for me. The talking to, you know, like... And that's a male thing, I think. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's very hard to... To sit down and particularly talk with a stranger, but again, like I know, I think it's great. So I've yeah, I've been seeing somebody. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's depression, but I think dealing with the shit I deal with and the drought, Mm. you know, I just think I just think we work on our physical fitness. We probably need to work on our mental fitness as well. It's like a constant reshaping, reframing, tune up. Yeah, I think it's much more common whether it's recognised or unrecognised. I think the recognised fellows are. Miles ahead of the game, you know. Oh, God, I know it's probably I know it's probably not the right note to finish it on, but I just think there's plenty of people out there to talk to, and I've always said, I don't know, I don't profess to know anything and everything, but you know, I'm happy enough to talk to anyone about anything we're doing here if they want. If people are willing enough to learn and want to see how we do things, then I'm happy enough to talk to people, and I think that's pretty much the key too. Don't be afraid to go up and ask someone. It was like when we first sort of started camp drafting like it was you know you make yourself known you go and find out who the best bloke is and say right go up and introduce yourself and you know just ask them to pick your cattle or something same deal like mm. you know until you get you know people like are generous just, with yeah. their knowledge aren't yeah. they yeah and, and I think you just got to ask like because people aren't going to go and spit out everything if you don't ask and I think that's the key you just got to find out what what you want to do and surround yourself with the right people to help you get to where you want to get to. That's right. So, and yeah. I think that's one thing I've noticed over the course of the drought is how people have become more opened up with their problems. Like they're not afraid to admit that times, you know, it was tough and there was stuff dying and it wasn't going well and, you know, they weren't in the boat on their own. Their mates were all in there with them. So you're uh, lucky that you and Sal are a partnership too and you're in it together though. So you can talk to each other and make those decisions together. I think it's hard when you're on your own or your partner's not involved in the farm so much? That's probably a pretty fair call too. And and, and we're probably, in saying that, it's probably pretty unique that that the both of us are actually on the farm because mm. you look at a lot of our generation, most of the wives, well, not being gender specific, but most of the wives have got a job in town, yeah. a lot of them too. So, And you're right, like you do bounce ideas and we, obviously we all have our moments too because we're different people, we're not the same, but... We've worked on that overarching principle that this is how we want to be seen, this is what we want to try and do. So longer term, each of our you know, short term goals and, and things like that are leading to a, to a longer term vision, so to speak. So, mm. Mm. Good. Well, I'll be sure the best with the vision. I can Thank see you. it happening in front of our very eyes. There's nothing better than standing with the sun setting watching cattle graze. So, yeah, I wish you all the best and thanks for talking to us today, Morsi. No problem. Thanks, Jill. If you need support for your mental health, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. 
hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.